0: Thanks for uh, being here today. If you are new here, or perhaps new here, haven't been here in a while, um, we are working through um, the accounts of including the, the or that include the, the prophet Elijah out of the Old Testament, First and Second Kings. Now, sometimes I wonder if you do, like what could ancient Israelite historical record possibly have to teach me? You know, we live in 2022 here, but as I prepared this, this, uh, this week, I was certainly convicted with some of my attitudes, and I, and I hope and I trust that you'll get something of value as well. How many of you enjoy watching a good movie? Wow, not very many people watch TV. All right. All right, I, for sure me, if, if, if I take the time to watch a show, I'm gonna probably gravitate to a, an action flick. You know, kind of minimal sensuality, minimal foul language, but lots of good clean violence. You know, that's me. Now, now if, if, if one of those aren't available, then probably a good conspiracy film is where I'm gonna go. Something with, uh, you know, a conniving uh, evil characters, perhaps an unsuspecting hero, ultimately a satisfying conclusion. Now, our text today, I think, would actually make a pretty good script. It has superb characters. As we heard it read, it contains powerful, corrupt leaders, right? There's King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. There's deceitful plans against Naboth. Murder, and and there's finally drama there where, where the prophet Elijah confronts King Naboth. King Ahab, pardon me. But unlike most movies that I watch, this story is actually true. And unlike most movies I watch, the ending is unusual, You know, before we dive in, let's recap a little bit of what's going on. So, about 1,000 years before Christ, David became the second king of Israel. His son Solomon takes his place about 40 years later. And although Solomon was a very wise man, he began kind of the pattern of kings of rejecting God and embracing other idols to worship. Solomon's son, he was not wise. He was responsible for a huge revolt within the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes divided initially with 10 in the north called Israel and two in the south called Judah. Now, the capital of the south was Jerusalem. The capital of the north, northern kingdom, where this account takes place today was Samaria. So in 874 BC, about 150 years after King David, Ahab becomes the eighth king of Israel. Now, Ahab was a pretty handy military guy but he was selfish and he was sinful. He was really only interested in the God of Israel when it suited his own needs and he was desperate. He showed horrible discernment in his wife. Jezebel, she's a real piece of work. Now, she was immoral, she was conniving, she's manipulative and totally rejected and hated the God of Israel. The two of them together, they embraced the God of Baal. A summation of the character of King Ahab and kind of of this whole story setting is found partway through our passage today. You heard it read in verse 25. Verse 25 says, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Now, Ahab and Jezebel, they lived in a palace they'd kind of had built in a place called Jezreel. Although Samaria was the capital of Israel, Jezreel, about 20 miles north, was far more strategic. See, it sat on kind of on high ground. It was near the border. It was the first line of defense against the Armenian and Assyrian armies to the east, protecting the road that led down to Samaria. Ahab built this fortress, you know, for strategic reasons, but, you know, it was a new palace. It was pretty swanky. He controlled a huge amount of land. He owned all the toys of the day. He had the best food, the best horses, best servants. His life was good. But he wasn't satisfied. You see, he was standing on the wall one day, looking down at a lovely little vineyard belonging to his neighbor. And he wants it. Well, actually, no, he needed it. He wanders over to his neighbor neighbor there, Naboth, and he asks to buy it. And in verse 2, we see, And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard. That I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. If it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, at first look, this, this appears to be kind of a normal business transaction request. The king isn't looking to steal or expropriate this guy's land, he's offering to pay for it or even trade it for a piece of land elsewhere. Naboth could likely have bargained and done pretty well on this deal, actually. But Naboth doesn't bargain. He told King Ahab that this land wasn't his to sell. Even if he wanted to sell it, he couldn't. It was his inheritance, and it would continue in his family for generations to come. We, We read in Numbers 36, verse 7, it says, "...the inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to their inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So it brings us to our kind of first point, the desires of man. We're going to be talking about coveting. Here's where our plot line kind of really gets going. You see, King Ahab didn't just like this property. He coveted it. He had all the wealth that man could imagine, but he wasn't happy if he couldn't have this little bit more. Was it wrong for Ahab to desire the vineyard? No, absolutely not. Just like like it's not wrong for any one of us to, to desire things. You know, perhaps a good living, a nice home, You know, a good business, a comfortable, uh, a new car, a boat, maybe an RV. You know, where Ahab went wrong, and we can as well, is allowing our desire to become an obsession, to actually covet something. Coveting actually makes it in the list of the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, that God passed down through Moses. In Exodus 20, verse 17, we read, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when we look at the commandments, remember, what's the first commandment kind of deals with? Don't put any other gods before me. I'm the Lord your God, right? So it talks about there, and then it kind of goes through the next series of commandments about things that you should do or shouldn't do. You know, honor your father and mother, don't murder, these kind of ideas. And then it ends up in number 10, which says, thou shalt not covet. All these action things, and it ends up with one that actually just talks about our thoughts. Coveting, in our mind. Why would God tell us not to think in a particular way? Why should we not covet? Perhaps because God knows that thinking or coveting something ultimately makes us act out and leads us back to idol worship, which brings us back to the first commandment. You know the Webster's Dictionary defines a person who is covetous as marked by inordinate desire for wealth or possessions or for another's possessions. You know when I was in in when I was in grade six, I competed on the cross country team. Now, I'll use the word compete quite liberally because I was actually from a small country school in Aldergrove and the cross-country team it, uh, consisted of a few of us that raised their hand. You know, when the teacher said, hey, who wants to go for a run after school for the next three Wednesdays? So I put it in my hand. So one of, our, one of our runs was on the grounds of Trinity Western University and as we're running along, there's a trail and there's kind of a, an embankment, kind of goes up to the, to the right and then the little trail and then there's kind of an embankment and gully on the left and this was just grown over as you can well imagine full of blackberry bushes and everything so i'm running along and as i'm coming along and passing from second place into first place obviously that guy wanted that first place way more than i did i think he might even have coveted it because as i come alongside he gives me the old heave ho with his elbow and i go headlong down into this gully of blackberry bushes not good Well, it took me a few minutes to straighten myself out, and uh, many people, of course, have passed and run by then, so as I kind of get my little skinny, bloody body out of there and start running, I was running with a new intention to catch that guy, which I never did. Coveting is considered a sin. Now, one of the dangers is how sneakily it can rear its head. I I think coveting is a sin that has, has a seed planted in each one of us. All it needs is the right circumstances to grow. You know, you you meet people with a nicer house. Why can't I have a house like that? People have nicer toys. I deserve those. You know, why do those people get to take fancy vacations? You know, I want that too. You know, he has a perfect wife. She has a perfect husband. Look who I'm married to. You know, why can't I have a marriage like that? Those children, they're perfect. Why can't my kids be like that? You know, that guy, that girl, man, she's the perfect body, perfect hair, perfect eyes, perfect teeth, perfect nose, you know, perfect toenails. I don't know, whatever it is, I need that. Listen to that person brag about the relationship with Jesus, how he's blessing them, and they're so in tune with Jesus and stuff like that. Why not me? Most items in that list are not bad things to work toward or desire. The challenge is when we cross that line into coveting them, being consumed with thinking about them, finding ourselves discontent and irritable just thinking about it. You know, I might be smiling on the outside, but inside, I'm irritable, I'm bitter. Coveting will rob us of peace. We'll never be satisfied. You know, when it comes to material stuff, we humans can develop insatiable appetites. You know, I long for that new, I don't know, fill in the blank. And shortly after getting it, I wanted more. Now, I'm big time in favor of setting goals, for sure. Striving to do better or attain more. But when that pursuit robs me of my joy in my relationship with God, perhaps robs me of the joy in the relationship with other people, or even just robs me of the joy within myself, I have to ask myself, have we crossed that line into covetousness? You know, often an early indicator of coveting is, is beginning to despise the blessings in my life that I do have, given that I'm con- so consumed with longing for the things that I don't have. Am I loving the wrong things? I don't know who wrote this, but I love it. It says, I asked God to give me all things so I can enjoy life. God says, I will give you life so you can enjoy all things. First John 2:15. Do not love the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So King Ahab he asked to buy the vineyard. Naboth says, "Sorry." And Ahab doesn't like this answer at all. Verse 4, And Ahab went into his house. He's vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and he turned away his face and would not eat food. Basically, the king goes home. And because Naboth said no, you know, poor king Ahab has a pity party. And here we brings us to the second part of the story. The part where the ominous music begins the actions of man, or in this case, the actions of woman. Jezebel enters the scene. Verse 5. But Jezebel's wife came to him and said to him, "'Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food?' And he said to her, "'Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, "'Give me your vineyard for money, "'or else if it please you, "'I will give you another vineyard for it.' And he answered, "'I will not give you my vineyard.' And Jezebel's wife said to him, "'Do you now govern Israel? "'Arise, eat bread, let your heart be cheerful.' I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, real briefly, notice how pouty King Ahab didn't repeat exactly what Naboth said, did he? Naboth said, I can't sell you the vineyard because God prohibits it. But Ahab tells his wife, Naboth said, I will not give you my vineyard. You know, Ahab doesn't hear a man speaking from godly conviction, but rather from selfishness, kind of like himself. Now, I don't really think that Jezebel cares at all about that vineyard. I don't even know if Jezebel cares about Ahab. I don't know what the marriage situation was, but she doesn't strike me that kind of lady. What really bothers Jezebel is that some lowly subject, a follower of Yahweh no less, would dare to reject the wishes of a powerful king and his wife. So she tells Ahab, don't worry. Borrows his royal seal and devises a plan. Verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with a seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived in Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and king, then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed or blasphemed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. Now, Jezebel, she was a follower of Baal the pagan lord of fertility and rain. And, and Jezebel and her God were recently humiliated by Elijah through that, on Mount Carmel, or Carmel from, with that fire from heaven showdown, you might remember. Now, when I read this account of Jezebel's plot, my first question is, why devise such a complicated plan that includes so many people? Wouldn't it be easier just to just kind of hire a hitman and you know, take out Naboth on his way home from, from work one day? But that wouldn't have worked. You see, she knew that she had to totally discredit this guy to ensure nobody would question her husband assuming ownership of the vineyard. She had to ensure that no one would question why there weren't any natural heirs to inherit the land. So she declares a fast. How spiritual of her. You know, this would be done if something bad or evil had, had come to Israel and they would fast to seek God's wisdom you know, to try to reveal the cause or the perpetrator. Remember, Jezebel hated the God of Israel, but she was all too happy to use this religion to support her evil plan. How often is religion or or even the church used for manipulation rather than good? So Jezebel sets Naboth in a place of honor. You know, he's now pretty high profile at this event. Blasphemy was a serious crime, punishable by death. But to ensure a quick process, she required two witnesses. You see, one witness, that would require further investigation. But two witnesses, we can carry out judgment immediately. By citing Naboth's criminal act against both God and king, it ensured the strongest consequences affecting not only Naboth, but also his heirs. In 2 Kings 9.26, it says, As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Jezebel wanted no loose ends. No chance of Naboth's sons stepping up to the rightful inheritance. And that day, daughters could not inherit. Good good luck in this case. So she will have to have both Naboth and his sons put to death. I'd like to pause for a moment and make an observation about the actions of Jezebel. Did Jezebel feel justified in her actions? Sure, right? Did Jezebel feel that there would be consequences to her actions? Probably not. I like that in tune there. Why did Jezebel feel justified? Well, she was a person of power. Her husband was a king. They deserved whatever they desired. But why do we take exception to this action? Because we believe murder is wrong, right? Right? So we think this is wrong. Jezebel thought this was right. You know, it's quite common since the beginning of time to determine or fashion our own morality. Jezebel determined taking this action was permissible based on her personal desires, her feelings, and her position of power. To her, morality in determining right and wrong was based on her. There aren't any absolute standards that apply to her. You know, this is a common perspective today as well. What feels right to me is right for me. What feels right to you is right for you. This line of thinking is called relativism. And the assertion that there is no absolute truth, of course, is is of course itself an absolute statement. So if somebody ever says, you know, there is no truth, what do you say? Is that true? One obvious problem with relativism is, is ultimately there cannot be any real truth. There cannot be any claim of something being right or wrong. Any moral argue, argument is, is, is only preference. Any truth claim is just my opinion versus your opinion. But I believe that there is good evidence that the truth claims within Christianity, given by God through the Bible, that these are valid. I would suggest that, these, that without these truths, without objective moral principles that are true whether you believe them or not, without these, society suffers. Now, now, I know that many atrocities have been performed in the name of God or religion, and I don't for a minute defend them as being right. But I also know that there have been more people have suffered and died under regimes and governments rejecting all organized religion and belief in God. You know, even if we just look at the last century with, you know, communist Russia or the Chinese history under Mao or, or Cambodian killing fields. I mean, these are all national and entirely secular. Without morality beyond herself... Jezebel was not only justified in her actions, but would almost be silly not to take this action. She would be more troubled by her conscience if she hadn't had Naboth removed. You know, presently the world has a war in the country of Ukraine, a modern society being invaded by Russia without morality beyond ourselves. Not only is this type of conflict acceptable, but from the viewpoint of might is right, it is the appropriate thing to do. How can we, without some recognition of God's morality, point fingers and call this activity wrong? Now, I do realize there are international treaties in place. There's alliances between countries. There's, there's international humanitarian law or, or just war theory that would dictate, yes, this is okay to go to war, and if you're going to go and kill people, this is the way you're going to conduct yourself. But any of these agreements can be changed depending on the morality held by the governing body. A law that says human trafficking or killing civilians is wrong today can just as well say it is okay tomorrow, depending on which side of the border you happen to live. When we see this type of action by a Russian leader and his armies, just like Jezebel's actions, it is wrong. It is unjust. Now, I believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created mankind in his image. And because of this, all mankind has intrinsic value. Also because of this created order, we humans also have an imprint of God's morality. The world over, as we observe different cultures and people groups, there are far more similarities in morality than there are differences. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in, in speaking kind of to, to morality and, and its likelihood, he says, you cannot make men good by law. And without good men, you cannot have a good society. That is why we must go on to think of the second thing, of the morality inside the individual. Now, given our propensity to be selfish and walk away from God, this moral impression can become faint. The behavior of soldiers under Stalin, Mao, the Khmer Rouge, or now under, under uh In the Ukraine war, they show that life can become cheap. A man's conscience for fellow humanity becomes numb. In our story, Jezebel's conscience had become numb to her sinfulness. She had recently witnessed the miracle on Mount Carmel. Carmel? Carmel. Rather than recognize that her preferred deity, Baal, was a sham and submit to the one true God, she became more hateful, more resentful, and more set in her way of thinking. How often do we recognize God at work, or or observe the complexity of of the beautiful creation around us, but rather than submit to God, we choose rather to double down on on counter-beliefs that allow us to to continue just living life the way that we choose to. Social contracts, or or the law of society, they may inform my driving habits, but it is my identity in Jesus that convicts me to disagree with pro-abortion arguments, to to condemn racism, to speak out against euthanasia. And it's my identity in Jesus that calls me to denounce the murder of civilians by governing authorities. So we talked about the desires of man. We see the actions of man. Lastly, let's talk about the mercy of God. So now we come to the climax of our story. King Ahab is wandering through his recently acquired vineyard. He is certainly more in tune with the God of Israel than his wife. However, whatever twinge of guilt his conscience suffered over Naboth and sons is fading quickly while he enjoys his acquisition. Pick it up in verse 17. It says, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession and you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and I will cut you off from Ahab, every male, bond, or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the house of Baasha, the son of Ahajah for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city of the dogs shall eat, and anyone, who has, who, and anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Oh, man. Isn't it uncomfortable when we're confronted with our sin? Ahab had likely already justified his actions, right? He's probably thinking, well, I didn't really kill Naboth. It was my wife, Jezebel. I'm in the clear. Or he could have just kind of pushed the guilt or pushed the the, the accusation. He says, If Naboth had only done what I had asked and sold me that vineyard, you know, everything would be okay. It's not my fault. It's his for being dead. How often do we justify our sinful behavior? We assign blame to others. I know, I shouldn't have got all torqued at the kids and stuff like that, but they had it coming. They were irritating me. Or he could minimize sin. You know, I know I shouldn't be watching that junk on Netflix, but come on now, everybody's doing it. And after all, I'm an adult. Then along comes the Holy Spirit and convicts us. Note, how does Ahab address Elijah? Elijah. He doesn't say, oh, hey, oh, buddy, old pal, does he? No. Have you found me, oh, my enemy? Have you found me, oh, my enemy? Ahab knows he's screwed up. And no matter how he justifies things in his mind, Elijah's there to confront him with his sin. However, he doesn't want to be confronted. He regards Elijah as his enemy. He just wants to enjoy the fruit of his coveting. how do we see the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Have you found me, O my enemy? So if this was actually a movie script and not a biblical account, how would we see this ending? Well, probably just like Elijah says, right? You know, there'd be the prompt, perhaps dramatic death scene of, of, of Ahab and his wife Jezebel, dogs licking up blood, and then Elijah walking off into the sunset. But this has an unusual ending. This isn't what happens. This is where the script departs from Hollywood. Quite honestly, this is where the script departs from my sense of justice. I love seeing the bad guy get it in the end. But the justice of God doesn't always follow our sense of justice. In verse 27, And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has, was humbled or has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I'll bring the disaster upon his house. What? Jezebel and Ahab get away with this just because Ahab put some sackcloth and ashes and, and seeks God's compassion? This is not right. You know, they ought to pay. The story of Ahab happened 2,900 years ago. Well, about 1,000 years later, another man came to earth. He was born through miraculous circumstances. He led a perfect life. The powerful authorities of the day and the religious leaders contrived a, and twisted religion and contrived a plan. They had false witnesses bring testimony against him. Blasphemy against God and blasphemy against Caesar was the charge. They beat him. And they hung this innocent man on a cross to die. That man, Jesus Christ, just prior to his death, he appealed to his Father in heaven. Do you know what he said? Forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. What? That's not right. Those Jewish leaders, those Roman leaders, they ought to pay. But that isn't how the God of the universe demonstrates his love or his justice. Yes, God is just, but he's also gracious and merciful. God knows us better than we know ourselves. There is nothing that you have done that God is not already forgiven. There's no sinful behavior that you can hide from him. And there's no amount of work, effort, or payment that we can achieve to pay for this forgiveness. Please don't see him as your enemy. John 316 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, ultimately, uh, if you want to read ahead in the 2 Kings, um, things didn't end well for Ahab and Jezebel. Um, but their demise only came after numerous opportunities to submit to the God of Israel and repent of their wickedness. They continued, though, to see the truth of God and the prophets, like Elijah, they saw them as their enemy. The truth Elijah confronted them with was an enemy against their selfish desires. It was an enemy against their coveting, and it was an enemy against their relativistic morality. You know, if you are here today and, and you have questions about anything that I've just talked about or, or what implications this may have in your life, you know, feel free to talk to me or another pastor, your campus pastors. And, uh, yeah, just don't make God your enemy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word, even though it was written a gazillion years ago. Um, it is convicting, Lord. You did create us. You created us with purpose. We pray that we can be true to your call in each one of our lives. And, Lord, uh, as you call us and expose us of our sinfulness, I just pray that, uh, that we do not see you as our enemy, but we either long to repent, long to turn from our sinful ways that we can gain a better understanding of what your will is, what your love is like. And Lord, it's not for our, I guess, it's not for our, well, it's for our better, for betterment, but it's not for our end, Lord. It's, it's the opportunity that we then can express our your love and truth to people around us. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this church, for the people here, Lord. I pray for your blessing on them marriages, families. We pray this all in your great name, in Jesus' name, amen.